Oh, I didn't see it there. This is Everyone Dies in Sunderland, a podcast about growing up terrified in the 80s and 90s. Every week we take a trip back to a year of our childhoods and revisit the horrifying events happening down the road, which should have been scaring us and the bizarre pop culture that was scaring us. And don't worry, even though you just heard Haunted Dance Hall by Saviors of Paradise, the song, as we heard on a previous show, that gets played on Radio 1 in the event of a national catastrophe. World War Three hasn't started yet. This is pre-recorded. Um, and if it has, we're tremendously grateful that you downloaded this before it did. With me, as always, is the former DVD reviewer of The Sun. That's the newspaper. Celestial body. Mr. Gareth Alexander. Hiya, John. I'm glad the world's not ended. Yet. Well, quite. But given where I live, which has scarce electricity and we have to fend for ourselves against the elements it might as well have done um i've been listening to other more popular podcasts as, as you well know to see what we can learn from them go on greg james has one about complex fraud greg james of radio one and complex fraud he's a man of many talents is he though <laughs> anyway we can't compete with that claire Claire Robinson, by the way, I've been meaning to ask, did you have a creepy ornamental well in your garden growing up? No, but we did have a hole that I used to fall down every couple of days because we <laughs> used to have a chicken pen there. As always, you provide so much more than I can ever ask for. <laughs> um, when a creepy ornamental well is making a comeback, by the way, from a creepy ornamental well, sometimes like slightly pretentious families were like, yeah, we, we have a small well in our garden. It's not a real well. And there's lots of people in Africa who also have wells in their garden, a lot less enthusiastic about them. <laughs> um, <laughs> are there, speaking of uh, Haunted Dance Hall by Sabres of Paradise, any songs you can think of? Well, if you ask people if you know that song, they'll say no, but they do know that song. They just don't know the name of that song. Yes. Yes. What songs are they? In the Hall of the Mountain King and also... The Dance of the Nights from the Romeo and Juliet opera. You both know either or both of them. One of them, which goes dun to dun to dun to dun to dun to dun to dun suddenly come on the pitch to you, Gareth. Well, there you go. And also, uh, I was watching Pointless last night. You had to name the band that sang the, a song, and they were all days of the week. And the last one was Friday, I'm in Love by The Cure as most people know. And he said, there's a very interesting fact about this one. Everybody knows this song. Everybody knows this song. If you ask anybody, they'll know this song. However, The Cure only got 10 points. That's one of those mad, pointless moments. Yeah. If you go on uh, Pointless, what's really interesting, if you ask people to name members of Tony Blair's first cabinet, and you say George Robertson and Frank Dobson, they are, they are both pointless answers. But I don't like to talk about my time on Pointless, or the trophy <laughs> I have on my mantelpiece. Or the fact that we only have this podcast, so hopefully, I, I hope one day we will go massive and I will become the first person in history to win Pointless, first as a civilian and then as a celebrity. Wow. <laughs> Is that the goal? That's the goal. Did I not mention? Claire, songs that people don't think they know but do know. Tom's Diner, because it's got the most irreverent name in the entire world, but everyone knows the song, they just don't know what the f*** it's called. That is such a great shout, and I think... Because if nothing else, we are a Victoria Corin Mitchell stan podcast. I'm yeah. so glad you were going to say that. <laughs> Can we all now hum the introduction to Tom's Diner just so people know what the song they don't know is? It's only me doing this. Claire is miming. I was doing it. <laughs> but I can't hold a tune as it's been established. So How many seconds are we actually allowed to play before we become charged for it? I don't know if 24. it's a like 24 or PRS, but <laughs> note to self, cut 10 seconds of haunted dance floor. Weirdly, do you know Sabres of Paradise at all? Absolutely not. Some people know them because one of them is a guy called Andrew Weatherall who juiced Scream Delica, the Primal Scream album. So he's sort of known as a, as a dance music person. But like, not only do they have the song that Radio 1 plays in the event of the Queen dying or World War Three breaking out, they also have a song called Smoke Belch 2. Does anyone know Smoke Belch 2 by Slaves of Paradise? No. no, I can't say I do. I'm sorry. Let's prove that hypothesis.
No, no, I, st- I stand corrected. I do know that. Yes. You sometimes hear it uses instrumental music. I think the ultimate one for me is um, Bentley with the Mace. Bentley's going to sort you out. Do either of you know that one? I know Bentley with the Mace, but I don't. And I probably do know this song, but I didn't know it's called Bentley's going to sort you out. Claire helpfully there miming, I know that one. Because both of you have such a grip on how podcasting works. <laughs> the other exactly, one everyone of. knows Bentley's going to sort you out by Bentley with a mace. The other one that I was thinking of, just and it's just occurred to me, is, do you remember a while ago, and I think it was used in a Nokia advert, which was just sort of a ringtone going, do, 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 do. Space hog, do, in the meantime. Do. Ah, I was going to say Penguin Cafe Orchestra, but they may have sampled that for uh, whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, it's... No. And funnily enough... Hey, that... Hi, Stereo MCs. <laughs> oh, I know yes. that. Yeah, just yes, not the way... That, yeah. <laughs> now you say it, yep, yep. Yeah. Connected by Stereo MCs, yep. On, on topic of, like, that we go beyond this, oh, is that what that song's called? And into the, no, I don't believe you can ever claim you don't know what that song is. First of all, I thought a good example of this was Club to Death by Rob Dugan. That's I feel like, like I know Ma- that one. That's like the Matrix one. I haven't got a sound clip. Concerts primarily camping impersonator said, no, too many people know that's Club to Death, but it's kind of like big beat song from the Matrix that got used in lots of reality TV for a long time. It's like, yeah, now these people are going to do something really cool. Let's get, mm. oh, they're so cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the bank heist scene, is it? Yeah. Or the, the heist scene. Concerts premier Ellie Kemper impersonator was talking about Blue Monday at work, by which we mean the day that isn't actually the scientifically proven most depressing day of the year. It's just a piece of PR shithousery invented to sell holidays, but yet lapped up year after year by embarrassingly credulous journalists from publications <laughs> who nonetheless put a boilerplate at the end of every article telling you that if you don't contribute towards Adrian Charles's partner commissioning him to write about not liking traffic jams twice a week, fascism has won. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like Valentine's Day then, yeah? Basically, yes. Valentine's Day does exist, though. If you want to get on things that exist, do you get Valentine's presents delivered to you by Jack Valentine? No, of course you don't. That's just <laughs> something the concerts primarily came from personally made up. <laughs> Hello to the people of Norfolk. We have at least two quite big fans in Norfolk. Um, <laughs> three, actually. Good evening, Norfolk. Good evening, Norfolk. Who uh, apparently in, in Norfolk, uh, your val- you get a Valentine's present delivered to you by Jack Valentine. True story. Oh. So, uh, concerts premier Ellie Kemper impersonator was talking about Blue Monday, and one of her colleagues burst into song. The song in question being "I Don't Like Mondays" by the Boomtown. <laughs> <laughs> and concerts premier Ellie Kemper impersonator was like, "Wouldn't it have made more sense for you to start singing Blue Monday?" And this person was like, "I've never heard that song." <laughs> Possibly claim not to know Blue Monday. I don't know Blue Monday. What? Come on. I don't know Blue Monday. Get out of here. Should I YouTube it now? Yeah, we can. Do, we'll do like one of those much more popular than YouTube reaction things, which is just people listening to music. Blue Monday. Oh, hang on, there's an advert. <laughs> I know this song. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Was there ever any doubt? To be fair, it doesn't actually say the words Blue Monday in the song, so. That's why I didn't know what I it mean, was, but I know that song. I don't know the name of the biggest selling 12 inch of all time. That's anyway. what she said. So, if you can think of a song that people will say, Oh, I've never heard that song, I don't know what you're talking about, but they absolutely do, do get in touch on everyone dies in Sunderland at gmail.com, at everyone dies pod on Twitter, Claire Robinson with the rest, at everyone underscore dies underscore in underscore Sunderland for Instagram and for Facebook, just look for everyone dies in Sunderland. Today, one show gear change. Speaking of <laughs> Giles, partner commissioning him to write about, well, don't you find that convenience stores can sometimes be more expensive than mainstream supermarkets? Commissioned to do so by his partner, the editor of the newspaper, who puts a boilerplate on the end of every article saying, if you don't give us money, fascism is one. Today, we're going to look at that time in 1999 when a Northumberland doctor casually outed himself as one of Britain's most prolific killers in a column in the Evening Chronicle. Yes, I'm surprised you don't remember. but speaking of doctors claire in our last show you were talking about your head teacher once threw an encyclopedia at you 
and yep. then tried to strangle another pupil in front of you and still got beloved head teacher retires <laughs> treatment in the yep. prep when yep. he left. My childhood doctor died a couple of years ago and he got full-on tributes paid to beloved family doctor treatments in the local press, which was odd because the last time I read about him in the newspaper, it was the Daily Star and it was under the headline, Pervy Doc Wanted to Feel Teen's Boobs. <laughs> what? Mm. A- a- accused or convicted, John? Yes, very good point. Oh. He was accused of calling a patient a naughty girl and trying to feel her breasts. And his successful, we must point out, his successful defence being he was gently chastising her for not seeking medical attention sooner and the breast feeling was as part of a legitimate medical examination. What was she in for? (laughs) In Sore throat. Yeah. Anyway, uh, completely unrelated. One of my earliest memories is he giving me uh, medical vaccinations in my backside. My kids have had loads of those now, and it's definitely in the leg. Has there been a change in medical practice, or is that something I should be worried about? Do let us know if you've been a long-standing medical of the medical profession. But do either of you have any doctor stories from your childhood? I know that Claire does, so I'm going to let her take the, the field for this one, because mm. I genuinely don't. Well, but I feel like my variation of scary is different. When I was given the brief, I didn't think it was going to be that level of scary. (laughs) But my doctors from my youth scarily didn't treat me for something that I was suffering from for a very young age, which is probably the scary part of it. So when I was in my early teens, like mid, no, it must have been about 15, 16. I went to the doctors because abnormally I was suffering from whenever I was walking long distances or doing anything with an upright activity, my feet and legs would swell to like balloons. And that's not normal for a 15, 16 year old human to be dealing with. And my doctors at the time turned around and said that that was just me. And they ran blood tests and they came back abnormal. But they said that was just me. And then they did additional blood tests and urine analysis and everything else. And they just said, there's abnormalities. You have heightened immune responses. And there was something else came through in my urine that shouldn't have been there. And they were like, it's just you. Then when I got to be in, in my mid to late 20s, obviously moved to the new location, changed practice, asked them to do blood tests got celiac so actually my doctors is probably responsible for when I come down with some sort of bowel cancer in my late 50s and then die <laughs> that's the scary part it is scary in fact you've actually that slightly triggered me because I had something very similar when uh, I, I had a period in not fortunately like you a long-term health condition but I had um, a lot of like bloating and, and digestive problems that went on and on and on. And I had the, the, the doctor at the time was like, oh, you, you have irritable bowel syndrome. This is just your life. Just eat omelets now. Then he retired and we got a new doctor who was like, this is just an infection. Like you've been living with this for two years. Have some antibiotics. And I you had, had to- an infection. Yeah. And they were like really hardcore antibiotics. And I had to have like iron tablets with them and they knocked me for six, but I was fine in about three days after two <laughs> years of like one doctor going like, yeah, you got irritable bowel syndrome, mate. Go away. Like, no offence to all GPs, mm-hmm. but you're not great. Like, do your job <laughs> properly. No offence, GPs, but you suck. Yeah, literally. <laughs> I mean, if we offend all of them, they can't come after us, yeah? Or sue us. We're generalising, it's fine. Did you have a creepy or incompetent doctor growing up? My mum had an incompetent doctor, actually. This is a better story. So- <laughs> doctor's practice in our village is so incestuously like close linked and it turned out that everyone in the village knew when she was pregnant because it spread it around the entire village and released all of her information because they like to talk that's incompetence the village knew before my dad did (laughs) well if we don't have any more incompetent doctors uh, or dangerous doctors or scary doctors at least until about 10 minutes time where it becomes the theme of tonight's show Should we move over to the year that this takes place in? 1999, which wasn't like Prince described it, let's be honest, in the company of 1999 correspondent Claire Robinson. 1999. So I don't think we've done 99 
before. Nope. We might have touched on it. I don't know. But we've talked about the Jill Dando situation, which comes up in this year. We did. So I, yeah. We also well, talked let's... about it being the year that Man United beat Juventus and send down Hull. <laughs> yeah. How did we talk about that if we've not done 1999? I just like talking about the death of Rod Hull. It's your favourite thing. So in this year, there was two people called Colin Prescott and Andy Elson. And can you guess what they did during this year? I can guess, but not well. Climbed Everest. And did they died. win pointless? No, neither of those answers are correct. The correct answer would be... They tried to circumnavigate the world in a hot air balloon, but instead they managed to set a new endurance record because they were in the air for 233 hours and 55 minutes in a hot air balloon. I don't think I could spend that much time with one other person. (laughs) Or they with you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I think they should have got a world record for like human patience. But anyway, also still on that lighter level, the Columbine massacre happened. It was a hell of a year for true crime, let's face it. It was a big year. Jill Dando was shot dead on her doorstep. And George Lucas released episode one. (laughs) The worst crime of all. Yeah. (laughs) I do believe on the day that we're recording this, or if not today, certainly yesterday, it was Jake Lloyd's birthday. So uh, happy birthday, (laughs) tiny Darth Vader. (laughs) Napster was launched and this started the great trend of piracy. For everyone, because we Wee. have all piracy, not like nautical piracy was already a thing. <laughs> but how do the... pirates have such good PR? By the way, I've always wondered. Like they're they're bad bad people. Why is it okay to dress your children up as them? Fantasy, it's the fantasy of being a pirate and the freedom that it gives you. I blame Disney, but then I do for most things. So yeah. We can also blame Disney for the Star Wars scenario as well. So there you go. Sega announced that they were launching the Dreamcast. How did that go for them? (laughs) And then also topical, Boris Yeltsin resigned as the president of Russia, leaving Mr. Vladimir Putin as the acting president. How did that work out? (laughs) Well, yeah, there we go. So that's little bits about 1999. Also, new English words and terms, because this is a new feature on Wikipedia, so I got quite excited about it. So the new words for this year were... (laughs) Sorry, Claire. I've done the research for this year. Look on Wikipedia. There's a new feature on Wikipedia. I've done more research. Yeah, totally. Always. It's easier this way. Gareth... How dare you mock me? At least I do research. It might just be print out Wikipedia pages, but it's something. Claire, when I worked at The Sun, the newspaper, not the celestial body, the days that Wikipedia went down were the worst days of my life. Me? Bloody love Wikipedia. It's great. So the new English words and terms according to Wikipedia are blog, hmm? carbon footprint, hmm. dash cam. Which I think is weird, because in 1999, I didn't think a dash cam was a thing. I've got one of them. They're shit dogs. Don't recommend. (laughs) (laughs) Epigenomics. That's not a word. According to Wikipedia, it is. I'll tell you what it means, because this is obviously how shit my research is. I didn't actually look up what the words meant. Epigenomics. Quality content, Claire. Always. Epigenomics. Epigenomics meaning it means the study of all the epigenetic changes in a cell what are epigenetic changes claire oh god i don't know Um, epigenetic changes are changes in the way genes are switched on and off without changing the actual dna Mm. knowledge we're all talking about in 1999 was it Apparently, but then was this? This was this year. Something, something probably happened in this. Well, year. I was going to say, was it was it Dolly the Sheep year or something like that, or was it just a couple of years after we've done? We've covered Dolly the Sheep before. But it was might it have been after the Dolly the Sheep because maybe that was nine... kind of subsequently Dolly the Sheep. Yeah, who knows? Might... There you go, Gareth dropping knowledge bombs. And even if it wasn't, I'll write it on Wikipedia. Then it will be. So, and then it's a fact, and then I would read it out as a fact. There we See? go. Other words, texting and vape. Again, vape. Seems very early for vape to be a word that we're using, but it's there. Does 
This year also was a year of many deaths, particularly in March 1999, because we lost on the 2nd of March, Dusty Springfield carked it. She died at 59 after a five-year battle with breast cancer. It's weird because she lived at 72. One really? Of my, one of my favourite pedanticism moments when talking about people dying. What? <laughs> it's like, I was, I was very tempted to use my own, like, speaking of Dolly, Dolly the sheep, has anyone ever tried using transgenic milk in their tea? It doesn't work. It's a very high-proud joke. Like when people say, passed away at 59. <laughs> I was like, it's curious because she lived at 72. <laughs> I'll say it again. What was she doing there? <laughs> John, I think you've scared and upset Claire with the, these jokes. I have no idea what's happening right now. <laughs> 1999, it was great. We were all texting our mates, weren't we? And we were like, oh, are you tuning in for Denise Van Outen's last big breakfast? No, I'm too busy talking about Eurogenetics, whatever it was called. Genomics! Eurogenetics. Right. Today, I saw, saw a post on Reddit or something, and it said, I can recite this uh, dress immediately, and then showed a picture of the Big Breakfast Studios. Can you, either of you, recite the address of the Big Breakfast? I didn't watch the Big Breakfast. Is it oh, well. Who Locked Keepers Cottages? Yeah. And it was East London, but I can't remember where in East London. Two Lock Keepers Cottages, Old Ford Lock, London E32NN. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, I can't do this. And I looked at the picture for about 10 seconds. I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's, yeah, yeah, old Ford Lock, London E32NN. So what's the phone number of going live slash live and kicking? Oh, one, There we go. <laughs> what else happened in 1999, Claire? On the 7th of March, Stanley Kubrick dropped dead. He had a heart attack. In St. Albans. Yeah. Heart attack five days after he completed the edit on Eyes Wide Shut. To be fair, if was... I was in St. Albans, I'd probably drop dead as well. I mean, if I'd made Eyes Wide Shut, I probably would have dropped dead and all. It's oh, it's not shut. that bad. It's rubbish. It's all right. It's crap. There was a guy who for years just used to get into like all the best restaurants by just saying he was Stanley Kubrick because like no one knew what he looked like. Everyone knew that he was a major director. So like, oh, hello, I'm Stanley Kubrick. Can I come in? Like, can you get me a table? And I was like, bloody hell, Stanley Kubrick. Because <laughs> he was reclusive and lived most of like the last 40 years of his life in St Albans. I'm fairly certain I could identify Stanley Kubrick if we were doing some sort of never mind the Buzzcocks lineup With the pirate at the other end. It's, you really like films, Gareth. It's not my True. tactic for getting to fancy restaurants. What's your tactic for getting to fancy restaurants? I don't, as Claire knows, I just assume, ah, it's, it's Thursday night, this, we don't need to book this place. And they yeah. go, you need to book, go away. And me and Claire are like, oh shit, where are we going for tea? Yeah, we nearly ended up in Nando's. Maybe um, he just sent them beforehand a really long set of rules. And then he came in and said, I'm Stanley Rubric. And they didn't... Uh, it was, <laughs> it was Quality really joke. hard to come up with the worst joke on tonight's show. After I did the joke about transgenic milk in my tea. <laughs> but Gareth did it. Christ. And the last two deaths of March 1999 were, well, not the last death of ever in March 1999, but the last celebrity deaths of March 1999 were mm. Rod Hull and Ernie Wise. There we go. John, do you want to do your joke again? <laughs> I really wish I hadn't used my joke about Rod Hull dying before we mentioned it. I mean, you're a bit premature with that one, but we'll let you off. Near feature. It was the first time I've heard that. <laughs> new feature. New feature. What? Go a new feature. All right. Because cool. I thought Gareth might like it. We're going to add comics to the rotation. Oh, mm. Jesus Christ. Okay. Gareth, what comic was cancelled by Marvel with issue 474 in March of 1999? If you know this, I'll be so impressed. Oh, God. Presumably been going for quite a while. Um, yeah. 1999. Was it something like... Was it something I like... Mind, was it this is the, me. Was it one of the Spider-Man titles, like Spectacular Spider-Man or Amazing Spider-Man or something like that? Or have I just made that up? Was, that, was it not that? No, it's not that. What it is it? It was the 1968 series of The Incredible Hulk. I was going to say that was going to be the second one because... After Peter David did it in the 90s, yeah, they rebooted it. There you go. 
Yeah. Wizard and Chips. <laughs> Wizard and Chips was cancelled long before 1999, mate. Couldn't even get a buster in 1999. I bet if you went back through Wizard and Chips, you would find plenty to cancel in those companies. Oh, God. You can't quite see them, but I've got um, all of my statuettes of the old Bino characters. I kept Little Plum in the box. <laughs> I thought it's inappropriate. The Surfer advert for Guinness is launched in this year, which I think begins a long line of very good Guinness advert. And Pokemon makes its debut in the UK, which became a massive part of my childhood forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it's amazing. Fat Planet by Left Field. Um, that's the, I believe I, I could be wrong. That's that's the Guinness Surfer advert, isn't it? Oh. Oh yeah, probably, probably yeah. There we go. Songs you don't realise, you know. Yeah. And that summarises 1999 in literally half an hour. <laughs> you also didn't get time for John's favourite. This is literally what happened. Well described by Wikipedia line of the week. <laughs> And I quote, England's national football team manager, Glenn Hoddle, gives an interview to the Times in which he suggests that people born with disabilities are paying for the sins of a previous life. Oh, my God. How did I miss that from my Wikipedia crap? <laughs> what a time to be alive. I feel like we discussed this briefly in the, um, this the uh, carry, the- carry On episode about like bad opinions or something like that. But <laughs> That's a very bad opinion. But... I, it, it's, it bears repeating. Mad. If you want to know, if we want to briefly like say what we were up to in 1999 as, as individuals, 1999, I believe, was the year of my first to-date only lad's holiday. You went out Where on you, a lad's holiday? Where did you go? It was Marbella. I've written here, boobs, bums and fannies, just three of the female body parts we didn't come within 12 metres of in the <laughs> <laughs> There was one night when the rest of us went home from Dak Club at about half ten to listen to the greatest dot dot album in the world ever on the CD. Wow. If you remember those compilations, 25 Oasis songs, Whale, Marion and Chemical Brothers for Musical Diversity. One lad uh, called Ash uh, stayed out for an extra half an hour, in which time he pulled the podium dance in the club. Something which definitely happened. So, okay. Hang on, though. But does that not just mean that you guys are cramping his style? That could well be of what happened. We were fully aware that this was this this had not happened. <laughs> my happiest moments of of possibly my life and definitely the holiday. Just sitting him down, like, okay, yeah, you talk us through step by step. Imagine this is the game by Neil Strauss, and you are Ross Jeffries <laughs> mystery. You give us your field report on how you, who looks like seventeen-year-old sentient Billy Bear Ham, <laughs> the, second, the second your mates went home, you, who looks like an unconvincing seaside waxwork of Jacob Rees-Mogg, managed to pull a podium dancer in what must have been between us coming home and you walking home. 10-minute window. He didn't give a convincing answer. I don't even know how old I was in 1999. I was 14 in 1999. I was doing very little other than just drinking Fosters in a park. Wow, you had a classy childhood. Mm. Ooh, Fosters. (laughs) Not not White Lightning. Or what's that other one? We flavoured 2020 is too good for some people. (laughs) Hello, I'm Concert's premier Ellie Kemper impersonator and I'm here to read the disclaimer. Everyone Dies in Sunderland explores some of the darkest moments of North East history and includes jokes. These jokes will never be at the expense of victims or their families and will always be at the expense of people who deserve to be mocked, robbed of their power and shown up for the idiots they really are. If you're easily offended or personally connected to the events we're discussing though, you probably shouldn't listen. I don't remember Dr. David Moore appearing in the local press, but apparently he used to all the time. The Northumberland GP, American listeners of whom we have a surprising amount, family doctor, had his practice in the West End of Newcastle. And in addition to that, he was often used by local newspapers, radio and TV to localise national medical stories. And to be honest, you can see why, because he looks like he'd be perfect for that. He's got half moon glasses, which say, I'm an expert, and then a bow tie and mutton chops, which say, 
I'm also quirky. He even had a regular column in the Newcastle Evening Chronicle. So when the Sunday Times ran an opinion piece by the head of the British Euthanasia Society, Dignity and Dying, uh, on doctors helping terminally ill patients to die with huge doses of diamorphine, Rachel Ellis from the Press Association rang him up for a comment. Now, she knew him well, having until recently been the health reporter on the Chronicle. And he was like, sure, I've done it twice this week. (laughs) As Ellis would say later in court... Surprised and clearly shocked about what he had said, I asked him if he was happy for these comments to be published in a story. I also explained that there was a possibility of a police investigation and asked him if he wanted to go ahead. He said he did. BBC Look North followed up this comment and Dr Moore went further. I would certainly say that over the years I have helped a lot of people to die. Ooh, how many? And he said, oh, probably about 10 or so a year for the last 30 years. Which if you've dabbled in crime, uh, what you'll notice he's done there is he's publicly confessed to killing 300 people, which is somewhat illegal. Uh, And in fact, in the words of one tabloid, would make him Britain's greatest serial killer. But before we go any further, uh, I'd like to take a quick look at an earlier Slightly similar case, one of which I've always wanted to do, but have been so far prevented doing by our incredibly restrictive remit, um, because it took place in Dorset in the 1950s. And that's the story of John Bodkin Adams. Have either of you heard of him? No. No. Yes, and you probably should have done, because he was either a pioneering doctor who changed the face of palliative care in this country, or he was a lethally useless doctor who was more of a danger to his patients than their actual ailments, or he was Britain's most prolific serial killer. Could he not be all three? Uh, yes. In fact, that's I'm... probably the correct answer, Gary, yeah. we'll come to. The first one, only by accident, though, I think it has to be said. Mm. Born in Northern Ireland in 1899. So 1999 is a fitting centenary before, say, Gareth starts complaining about our deviation from the remit. John, I'm, I'm perfectly happy now that we have no remit. And the remit we do have falls away like wet cake in the rain. He came to Eastbourne in the 1920s and his first move was to borrow £2,000, £120,000 in today's money from a patient named William Marwood to buy a house. He would regularly turn up uninvited at mealtimes at Marwood's house and expect to be fed. And he'd bring his mother and his cousin. He would also uh, charge his groceries to Marwood's account. And when William Marwood died, Adams came round and said he really wanted me to have that 22 karat gold pen. Mrs. Marwood described Adams as... A bloody arsehole, is that me? A real scrounger. I was close with a bit of a knob. By the 1930s, Adams was regularly receiving anonymous postcards accusing him of killing his patients. Now, which postcards would you use to accuse someone of murder? Because I'd use one of the classic seaside saucy ones when there's a doctor committing malpractice and the punchline is, that wasn't part of the examination. Come to Sunny Prostatin. <laughs> then there was the case of Agnes Pike, a patient whose family sought a second opinion about why she seemed to be getting worse and worse under Adam's care. And uh, a second doctor diagnosed the problem as the fuck ton of heroin she's being injected with every day. <laughs> After which she made a full recovery because there was nothing else wrong with her. How long was she injected with a fuck ton of heroin? Because... Uh... Surely she'd she'd be on the DTs or need meth. I know methadone probably wasn't a treatment by then, but Jesus, she must have had a hell of a come down. That's one way of looking at it. But then she did survive being treated by Dr. Bodkin Adams. When the war broke out, Adams was too old to be called up. Uh, So what generally happened in those circumstances is that doctors who were on active military service would reassign their patients to doctors who weren't. Not him, though. All the doctors in Eastbourne were like, no, not him. Genuinely, not him. It's a bit of a shame because surely he would have been great for the war effort. Like, it was, not, not it was to fighting, yeah. our troops, but anybody else's. So, so being at a bit of a loose end, he qualified instead as an anaesthetist. Now, you know mm. how uh, surgeries, uh, like, they can take forever, which must get quite boring for those that are taking part in the surgeries? Yeah. So Adams would pass the time by eating cake. <laughs> napping and counting money as an anaesthetist yes say it, say it again it was eating cakes napping and counting money 
No, I was more him. Yeah, sorry, him. Claire, <laughs> Clarence, what you called him him? Claire trying to pronounce anaesthetist. As an anaesthetist. <laughs> yeah, that'll do. That's fine. Anyway, he regularly mixed up the pipes as well and would give people the wrong gas so they would wake up mid-surgery, which earned him a reputation for being... A twat. A bungler. A bungler. Again, I feel it's the same <laughs> the thing. Guy, the guy who fucks up your anaesthetic because he's eating a cake <laughs> so that you come round mid-surgery. He's a bit of a bungler. Can we just address that this also sounds similar but also less gruesome to the Dr. Death case in America? It's uh, what uh, uh, Jack Kevorkian, because it's quite similar, obviously, because he gets conflated with Dr. David Moore a lot because it's happening around the same time in terms of... Uh, oh, does he? Yeah. But the difference is with this Dr. Adams, he just doesn't give a shit. I love no. it. He's just like, yeah, whatever. Shove the wrong tube down. Eat a bit of cake. No, Battenberg. <laughs> Back to my cake. Yeah. I, just uh, see, I just see him there going, ah, oh, smoking a cigarette. Ah, oh. do you know what I love about this game? Is all this fucking dollar making it rain over what 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 P? Fucking yes. I think that genuinely is actually basically Bucking Adams as a person. So in another incident, uh, Adams was accused of uh, extreme incompetence by a coroner. Why was this? Why did he call the coroner or why did the patient pass away? Why, why did the coroner call, call him extremely incompetent? Because the person was still alive. Correct! What? <laughs> yes. Called out the coroner and they're like, but she's alive? <laughs> it's not really what I do. I'll come back in a few days, okay? <laughs> so in 1952, he had a patient called Gertrude Hollett. Uh, who, yeah, who pres- he prescribed sodium uh, barbital for depression. It's a heavy sedative that wasn't used much after the early 50s due to user's annoying habit of dying. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she wrote Adams a cheque for £1,000, which he took to the bank and asked that it was cashed immediately. And it's a good thing he did, because Hullet fell into a coma that day, but he wasn't the first doctor to get to her when she fell into the coma. He found another doctor treating her when he got there, and in all the confusion and excitement, he didn't mention all those powerful sedatives he'd given her. Um, so him and the other doctor agreed that, I don't know, maybe a stroke? Hmm? Shall we get a stomach sample just in case she's been poisoned? No, best not. Sure, it wasn't your doctor that didn't prescribe you antibiotics for your irritable (laughs) bowel. It's a similar level of competence. (laughs) Five days before she died, she changed her will to leave Adams her Rolls Royce. How many wills do you think, Adams, at this point, the self-styled wealthiest GP in England had been the beneficiary in? How long would it be practising? This is the 50s, and he's been practising since the 20s, so 30 years. Conservatively, 150. Claire? Oh, I would say more like 250. Ooh. Only 132. Oh, ah. Gareth wins. Boop, boop. So, you can't do one a week, Claire, because then it just looks obvious. Mm-hmm. Yes, so uh, Gareth's <laughs> partner, although did tip off the police about his concerns and uh, I think found him to be the beneficiary in 132 wills of patients who subsequently died. A detective called D.S. Herbert Hannon commissioned a pathologist called uh, Dr. Camps to investigate and he found 163 suspicious deaths of patients in Adam's care. Now around this point, uh, journalists were sent to Eastbourne to look into this but they didn't print anything uh, due to the ongoing police investigation. One of those journalists is a man called Rodney Howarth, who, if we ever find a way to crowbar in the story of Donald Crowhurst like I want to, will also reappear. And he may well have been the person who wrote a poem that was recited to an audience of 150 people in a local hotel. So it's been a long time since we've had Gareth reading some poetry on this show. So Gareth, take it away. In Eastbourne, it is healthy and the residents are wealthy. It's a miracle that anybody dies. Yet this pearl of English Lidos is a slaughterhouse of widows. That doesn't work. Anyway, if their bankrolls are above the normal size, if they're lucky in addition, in their choice of a physician, and remember him when making out their wills, 
and bequeath their Rolls Royces, then they soon hear angel voices and are quickly freed from all their earthly ills. So to liquidate your oddkin by the needle of the bodkin, send them down to sunny Eastbourne by the sea. It was really difficult for me not to start that in kind of doing a a fresh Prince of Bel-Air. In Eastbourne it is healthy and the residents are wealthy. So yeah. And also, Lido's and Widow's yeah. is not a rhyme. Lido's and you Widow's. You said Widow's. Lido's and Widow's. Well, well, yeah. Are you supposed to Lido's say, in, in this, this Pearl of English Lido's, it is quite a good poem, apart from that really bad rhyme. It's better than what we've had previously. Mmm, bread. And <laughs> little face nappy or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> better than that. But not, it's not saying much. There was a warrant issued to search Adam's home during which he insisted that he didn't actually keep any dangerous drugs there because he didn't use them. And the police said, what did you just put in your pocket when you thought I wasn't looking? (laughs) And Adams was like, not morphine? On arrest, Adams gave this reassuring statement. Can you prove it was murder? I didn't think you could prove it was murder. Ah, she was dying in any event. And this is where things get really fun. The original magistrate in the case was a man called Roland Gwynn, with whom Adams used to go on holiday. And by go on holiday, we mean go on holiday. Oh, they used to go to a Lido Lido together. They used to go to Lido together, do they? A gentleman's gentleman's Lido. gentleman's Lido. Ah, get it now. Yeah, they didn't go alone, though. They also went on holiday with Detective Chief Constable Alexander Seekins, the second highest-ranking officer in the Dorset Force, and the perfect man, you'd think, to look after any incriminating evidence in a big murder inquiry you have going on. Unless, of course, it just turns out that he's in some sort of clandestine and, at this point, illegal sexual relationship with the suspect. Christ. Jesus. Still... At least the appropriate professional bodies were taking a keen interest and the British Medical Association wrote to every doctor in Eastbourne telling them not to cooperate with the police inquiry. What? Yep. Leading a somewhat confused Attorney General, uh, Reginald Manningham Butler, having a meeting with the head of the BMA, uh, in which point he handed them a 180-page report detailing the police case against Adams, which they passed on to Adams' defence team. Roland Gwynn there, yeah, that's that's a good facial expression. You can't see, uh, listeners, but Claire's done the the correct facial expression. Uh, Roland Gwynn that met with Lord Goddard, the head of the judiciary, who personally appointed the judge in the case and instructed him to release Adams on bail. Wow. But what was the justification for not believing the, like, was it to protect, was it a not all GPs and they were protecting all the other GPs? Or was it a... Really? Yeah, there's a lot of shenanigans going on. So it's the very early days of the NHS. So people say, oh, they didn't want the NHS to fail by going, oh, by the way, we've got a, a few of us are serial killers, but don't worry about the rest of us. Was there any evidence that he wasn't shagging somebody really high up in the uh, British Medical uh, Association? Because it sounds like he was shagging everybody else. I've seen no allegations of that, certainly. So uh, Manning and Butler, though, did select only one case of the 150-odd to go to trial, which is the death of a woman called Edith Morrill, uh, who died in 1950, uh, and left Adams a Rolls Royce in her will. But because she'd been cremated, there was no evidence, apart from the testimony of a team of nurses who were caring for her at the same time. Uh, but their testimony was called into question when eight notebooks detailing her treatment, Morrill's treatment, that uh, had previously gone missing during the police investigation, John Shrugs, to the other members of the podcast, suddenly <laughs> reappeared in the hands of the defence. Adams wasn't sure whether they'd been left on his doorstep or he found them in an air raid shelter in his garden. It's hard to keep track of how you come across the missing evidence which saves you from the gallows. <laughs> and this evidence basically contradicted the only real evidence the prosecution had, the nurse's version of events. So in summing up, Judge Devlin said, it is the first purpose of medicine to restore health. If this can no longer be achieved, there is still much for the doctor to do, and he is entitled to do all is proper and necessary to relieve pain and suffering, even if the measures he takes incidentally shorten life. And Adams was acquitted in less than an hour. Manning and Butler immediately announced that under a legal uh, argument called nolle prosecui, if I got that right, Gareth is our legal expert. Uh, it sounds right. 
It's been 20 years, John. That basically means it's not in the public interest for this person to stand trial for anything else, which is usually invoked if they're medically unfit to stand trial, which he wasn't, or they're about to turn Queen's evidence, which he didn't. (laughs) By the way, this is happening at the same time um, as the Suez crisis, when the Conservative government is hanging on by a thread, and um, new Prime Minister Harold Macmillan's brother-in-law had died in the care of Dr Adams. Uh, Adams was convicted of various counts of prescription fraud and struck off as a doctor for three years. Only three years? <laughs> After which he, uh, he returned to medicine uh, and became president of the Clay Pigeon Association. Oh, well, that's nice for him. And its chief medical officer. Oh. Would you like to guess how the chief medical officer of the Clay Pigeon Association met his end in 1983? <laughs> Accidental shotgun to the face. He died in an accident while clay pigeon shooting. Yes! I'm winning it tonight. I've not even done any research. Ah. Christ. Anyway, uh, in 1986, there was a largely sympathetic TV drama about him starring Timothy West, uh, about which um, writer Richard Gordon said, I think he is a very bad doctor, but that is not a capital offence. Manning and Butler also sealed the files on the case until 2033, which was 75 years but they were opened after a legal battle in 2003, revealing alternative cases, such as that of Julia Bradnam, who died the day after she changed her will to include Adams, Annie Sharp, the owner of a guest house, uh, where some of the other suspected victims died in, who started speaking to the police about her suspicions before she was diagnosed by Adams of having terminal stomach cancer and died five days later. Okay, you would think at the very least he could do a Sweeney Todd with that, wouldn't you? you think he'd go... Oh, you you own a B and B, then why not you and me? We join our hands together, and then doesn't kill her, and then just like ill people go to a B and B. She gets them to change their will. He sees them off. I mean, like, did, did he not bake her in a pie? He didn't. No, he never. He never baked Mrs. Lovett in a pie until right at the end when he killed her. But at the very <laughs> least, also, Bodkin Adams was a very fat man. He make a um, good pie, but like famously as well, like he when he was acquitted, like he <laughs> he had like a photo shoot. I think it was Daily Express. I'm not sure. Like paid him a lot of money for like the story of the doctor accused of murder, and like all the photo shoot is like him having a slap up feed to celebrate his acquittal. So it's like him <laughs> carving a turkey and going. Ooh. I think if in doubt, the Daily Express is probably a good shout. Yes, and there's also a, another terrible thing about like someone accused him of like being inappropriate with a patient in her room and he literally said she finds my fat fingers comforting i couldn't quite <laughs> put that quote in oh oh that rank <laughs> anyway the case did establish in uk law the principle of double effect that if a doctor gives treatment to a seriously ill patient with the aim of relieving pain and distress as a result of which the person's life is inadvertently shortened the doctor is not guilty of murder. And this was a philosophical change as much as a legal one. So up until this point, uh, the primary aim of medicine was always to preserve life, even if that meant suffering on the part of the patient. So perhaps inadvertently, John Bodkin Adams, a doctor at best shit, most likely high disreputable, and at worst serial killer, moved medicine to a place where keeping a patient pain-free was viewed more appropriate than keeping them alive. I think if we just briefly summing up on this one, Gareth, I think probably the most chance is that he's just he's disreputable. I think probably it's more likely than serial killer for me. I think this is a time where you weren't allowed to help people end their lives. Not that you are now, but like the, the point of medicine at this point was keep people alive at all costs. And he's like, put me in your will. Instant court. Yeah, but no, so that's where I would disagree. The Mm -hmm. fact that he's getting personal gain from their death that is subsequently administered by him, he's a serial killer. Mm. Yeah, I kind of get, I kind of see where you're both coming from, but I suppose like people don't get a dignitas for free. Yeah, but also he's getting people to sign over their wills. Like that's not just paying for us. You're you're dying anyway. You're dying anyway. Do you want to die in deep, deep pain or do you want to die quite quickly now? Bung me your Rolls Royce. I'm not suggesting it's fine by any way, shape or form. I'm just saying that that's probably the, in some situations, that could be the contract. I guess it's a bit like... Yeah, but then he selected people who had 
Rolls Royces or fancy houses. Like, I feel like there's a process involved, which means there was a premeditation, which means it was murder. Well, I'm not entirely sure that he select. I think because he got given people as well. He didn't select them. I think he just had a number of people. And at that point, you know, with the NHS being a thing, I'm sure a lot of people that would have initially paid private could probably go, oh, no, now it's a new thing. I'll go to the NHS. That's why I've come to the conclusion is because if you look at the timelines, most of his medical career is pre-NHS. It's only really after the, the NHS comes in that he's caught. So, yeah. in fact, he's actually been looking for wealthy clients. He's, had to, he's been private, effectively, most of his career. He's been going out of his way to find elderly, wealthy clients. After the fact. After the, oh, that's, that's, he's, he's literally yeah. been targeting for his customers, as it were. Aside not. Mm-hmm. How many Rolls Royces did he have by the time he got caught? Because actually, in 2005, there was only 796 Rolls Royces made and sold in the UK. And those numbers increased year through year. There wasn't many made originally. So how many did he have? Possibly two, the two we've covered. That's still more than most people. Mm. I bought serial killer personally, but that's me. Should we put a poll on? Yeah. Do, put, yeah, do put a poll on. Is that legal, Gareth? Can, can one of the things just be complex because i feel like i feel like i'm not denying you're not sold on the idea either way i'm not sold on the fact that he was a product killer in as much as he just killed people to get what he could i feel like there was something else there and maybe it's just i'm just wanting to give him benefit of the doubt i don't know i I mean gareth's been nice no, but equally, now I'm thinking, do I want to give Harold Shipman the benefit of the doubt? See, when you compare, though, it's very similar. Like, it's it's a very similar vein. Selected victims, personal mm-hmm. gain. If there's personal gain, I feel like you have to start but, going down that murder Yeah, pattern. but equally, it was a very different time. In, in the 20s to 50s, rather than in the 80s to 2000s, when Harold Shipman carried out his murders. Yeah. All of which brings us back to Dr. David Moore. Yes. George Little was an 85-year-old retired ambulance driver, and he was suffering with bowel cancer. Having had surgery to remove most of his bowel in June 1998, he was discharged to his daughter Doreen's home in the west of Newcastle, and with that, the care of her doctor, David Moore. So it took George's family two hours to get him up the stairs and into bed, a bed he would never leave. And after three weeks of deteriorating uh, and in pain, which has been described as remorseless, Dr. Moore set him up with a morphine syringe driver. Now, by all accounts, George Little wanted to die and gave every impression of being close to death. And on the 18th of July, he was visited by Dr. Moore, even though it was his day off, who found him sleeping, but breathing in a way that suggested death was imminent. And as the syringe driver had run out, Dr. Moore administered a large dose of diamorphine and George Little died 20 minutes later. There's a twist, though. George Little's cancer, not terminal. Really? Mm. Post-mortem would reveal um, an undiagnosed heart condition, which may give the impression of someone breathing their last. But there's a possibility he wasn't actually close to death after all. Another twist, of course, David Moore did not disclose this final injection in a report to the regional health authority or the police. Did he know about the heart condition? He didn't know, no. It was undiagnosed. Did he know that the cancer was terminal or not? he believed the cancer to be terminal okay best interest then Mm. surely he he did correct his reports later um but the dose he admitted giving was six times smaller than the amount of diamorphine recorded in the toxicology report but the turning point in the case came when the judge excluded that evidence on the basis that i think someone who was taking a lot of diamorphine would have a lot of diamorphine in their system you could probably couldn't tell which administration of morphine mm-hmm. this was, which left the prosecution with no proof that the injection given had caused death. There was also some heartfelt testimony from George Little's family saying that they were grateful for everything that Dr. Moore had done and that everything they did was with their support and they were very grateful that their father or George Little's suffering was over. Now, obviously, I'm not suggesting that Justice, Mr. Justice Hooper uh, told the jury what the right answer was, um, <laughs> but in his summing up, he did say, you may consider it a great irony of this case that a doctor who goes out of his way to care for George Little ends up facing the charge he does. You may want to consider the great irony of this case is a doctor who takes time out on his day off to tend a dying patient ends up on this charge. Mm. Oh, quite right. Yeah, and uh, uh, David Moore, like John Balkin Adams before him, uh, was acquitted after less than an hour of jury deliberation. And from some reports, the jury seemed to have joined him in the pub for a drink afterwards, which I'm not <laughs> sure was appropriate. <laughs> 
But the judge did award the defence team only uh, a fraction of their costs, saying that Dr Moore had brought the prosecution on himself by, and this is a quote, very silly remarks to the press. <laughs> Naughty boy, slap on the wrist. And that's the ridiculous of the situation. Uh, Dr Moore's mistake was saying, yes, I do give lethal doses of painkillers to terminally ill patients, knowing full well it'll end their lives, and not couching it in a euphemism like, I give terminally ill patients lethal doses of painkillers to make them comfortable, after which they almost immediately die. Beats me, why? But sadly, uh, unlike John Bokin Adams, Dr Moore had already retired uh, due to stress and would be arrested for drink driving within months of his trial and would die of a heart attack within a year of acquittal. Christ? Was there any um, sort of... I don't know this because, as usual, zero research. Any subsequent case law in this as to kind of how assisted suicide, it would never happen in, in UK law, but how that impacted any sort of assisted suicide doctors, you know. I think from the, the coverage at the time, people were like very grateful for having this re-clarified that. I think basically, wasn't it? The case law is, yeah, obviously it happens. Just don't admit to it in a newspaper column. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, I believe that's case law now. But that's what's annoying though. Like every single person within the medical profession who's involved with end-of-life care does do this and they should never be like no don't get me wrong i've just said the other one was a serial killer but that's because it was personal gain out of this yeah if you're doing it genuinely because you're getting someone comfortable and preparing from the end i don't have a problem with that because i'm pro death like i'm pro choice on death oh i think i think the podcast is like we're pro choice on life we're pro-choice on every anti-life we're anti-life this podcast i'm pro pro pro-choice on death i've already told my parents that when they start getting to that point i'm chucking them on a plane taking them over to switzerland (laughs) and doing away with them i'm not looking after them my mum's always said if she's got any dementia take me out in the back and shoot her so claire if my mum has any dementia i'm going to take her out the back of yours and you can shoot her Perfect. Sorted. Be fine. We'll find a way to deal with it in a more humane fashion than just shooting her in the face. Well, that's what she wants. If she's not looking at me, it'll be fine. Don't look at me in the eyes while I'm shooting you. There's an important tip there for any dogs listening. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. So Dr. David Moore, I feel, is, is innocent in this regard. And it's just a bit ridiculous with his vernacular. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think agreed. It's a very difficult one, isn't it? Especially if you're a kind of a human being and see somebody suffering. It's a good job that I don't have human emotions and fundamentally a robot. And if somebody's upset, I'm just like, ah, fuck. Yeah. Do either of you have, on the way out, uh, speaking of which, as we enter, as to make the audience comfortable as we exit the podcast, uh, do either of you have uh, a rabbit hole corner? Which is, of course, uh, stuff we found on the internet, which uh, has nothing to do with this show we found while researching this show. Personally, I do not, because think about you saying maybe we'll talk about that time that we were near a disaster and uh, then weren't near a disaster. And I've oh, got yeah, one. On that. What's that? You have something on that. I forgot about do. that. It was it was 1999, and I can't I still can't remember where we were. But um, in 1999, I got to do a one show glare change into um, into uh, <laughs> into like serious mode for this. This isn't rabbit hole corner. Does Claire have a rabbit hole corner, and we'll just keep this for next week? Um, not really. I was just been googling Rolls Royces because I was fascinated with how many Rolls Royces that doctor got. But if it was only two, I'm just still on Google, so it's fine. Fair news. I mention that in group chat. No, in 1999. There was a, a very brief, thankfully, bombing campaign carried out by a man called David Copeland, which included the attack on the, the famous gay pub, the Admiral Duncan, yeah. in Soho. And uh, at this point, I, I had a girlfriend who was at university in that London, and I was visiting her, and we were literally streets away from that, and I didn't notice anything. <laughs> so, like, it was interesting opening it up for future episodes, if, if listeners, you have anything, or if either of you have anything, like, where have you been next to a massive event and been completely oblivious <laughs> to that massive event happening? Well, this is the one that I was going to say, is that I was one of those, it's, it's one of those ones that is, um, oh, I didn't get on the plane for 9-11, in as much as on the, um, the 3rd of June 2017, I wasn't in my usual place of work, the... Offices of the Sun, the newspaper, not the celestial body, because uh, I had 
three days off each end, so I went back up north. So between the 2nd of June and the 5th of June 2017, I wasn't near London Bridge when, in fact, you know, anybody anybody want to suggest what happened there? So the bombing or the stabbing? Yeah, both. The proper bombing and the proper stabbing. Because there was the bombing, then that bloke got stabbed by that swordfish from the side of the um, restaurant. And I was, if if I was in work, like I would have been usually, and hadn't swapped my shifts, I would have been in full lockdown mode right wow. next to London Bridge and having to go into work probably at exactly the right time that this started. But then I found out that, uh, a few, well, I knew that a few of my colleagues were in that building, locked down, didn't get out until the next morning and could watch and take pictures of the atrocity as it happened on the bridge because it's one London bridge was the, was the building. And yeah, genuinely terrifying. And it was bad for me as well because I felt like if I was there, you can almost do something. You could, you know, say to your friends, oh, don't worry, it's not that bad. There's only a mental running around being a twat and try to make a daft joke out of it. But I was watching it back up north after leaving literally that day, watching it on the Sky News going, oh, Jesus Christ. And then having some of my colleagues go, just, just messaging on Facebook going, yeah, we're locked in the building all night. It's, wow. We can't leave. So that's, yeah, one of my ones of that. You have more than one incident where you nearly could have been at a death. I mean, let's not talk about 7-7. Seven, seven. It's like Rabbit Hole Corner in the last show was about Airwolf. <laughs> Bloody hell, Gareth. John, a man got stabbed by a swordfish. That's comedy. Yeah, it is, to be fair. Right, to, to lighten the mood on the way out, you forced me to uh, go back again to uh, the show's favourite the Nation's Favourite, that's the story about... Oh, God, this book. Radio 1. And to lighten the mood, uh, I'm going to talk about the death of Princess Diana. Hurrah. Because that's bright get a chance to use this <laughs> last time we talked about this book. <laughs> a couple of quotes I really like. So first of all, um, people forget that it was Kevin Greening, the late Kevin Greening was the, was the radio presenter, because uh, Mark and Lard were on holiday when this happened, and they basically got fired because they thought, we can't bring back Mark and Lard. It's... <laughs> Uh, into this situation they're not quite right for the national mood we're gonna fire them anyway they're never coming back so kevin greening was on air at this point <laughs> just this possibly it's only me that finds this funny so i'll do this one first so this is the transcript of radio one and <laughs> of kevin greening on air uh, just after the death of princess diana good morning this is radio one my name is kevin greening i don't know about you but i'm not feeling very funny this morning this is no ordinary breakfast show it's as simple as that Plays lifted by the Lighthouse family. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad Gareth found that funny because it was always a risk that it's just me. Uh, <laughs> I think this is genuinely more funny. This is basically, there's a, a conversation in the book. It's, it's all done in like in quotes, like it's talking heads, but written. I don't know. No, I'm sorry. It's, it's almost like, hi, Steve, right in the afternoon here. Um, so I'm going to throw over to uh, some factoids. Oh, factoid. Princess Diana's dead. Thanks, Jamie Lee Grace. You say that, but that's literally this next quote. So, um, oh fuck off! Yeah, they're, they're, lis- they're listening to um, listening to commercial radio to see how they're handling it, um, and they think that basically it is. They're probably right on this occasion, but it's the BBC going, and we were we did it right, and everyone else was wrong. <laughs> this is a quote from Nikki Campbell, who is listening to Capital to see what they're doing. I heard Chris Tarrant, and he was like. Oh, yeah, Diana, great friend of Capital Radio. Last time I saw her, she was... Uh, anyway, uh, 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 Ross, fly in the sky. Uh, yes, Chris, we've lost a great friend at Capital Radio. Famously, she would have Capital on in every room of Kensington Palace. And I thought, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki Campbell. Jesus Why is it that we think that it's important to talk about it all day, though? Like... So as a child, when Diana died, it was just a real inconvenience for me. And I still don't understand why they made such a big deal out of it. She was just another fucking human being who dropped dead. Who dropped dead because of... Because of a car accident. The the firm. Yeah, but still, like, even when the Queen dies, as long as she doesn't die before her birthday, because I want that day off. But 
if she Spoiler drops alert. dead, they're going to... She's already dead. She's gone to a forever home. Have you not seen today? But if they if they cancel everything because she drops dead, that's just an irritation to me. It's like, they wouldn't do it for me. So why are they doing it for her? I agree. John's, John's going to cut this. No, it's perfect. Perfect way to end. Speaking of the death of a monarch and euthanasia, what allegedly happened to her dad? Loads of fucking opium or something? I, I don't know what the drug was, but I think the... the allegation slash urban myth was they took a decision that they would euthanize the king so that his death coincided with the times going to print and not tabloids oh okay i never heard that bloody hell mm. really that's yeah. quite dark allegedly but surely they would have had again palace protocol like they do today or they just spent the last 50 years working out the best way to announce a death of somebody i don't know was King George euthanised? Which king of England was euthanised? This is what I've been drawing throughout the entire uh, evening. Lots of scary heads. I don't know why. I feel like this says a lot about you as a human. I've just been doodling all of that, really. That's your rabbit hole corner. Yes, here we go. Sorry, I tell a lie, it was the Queen's granddad. So the King's death at 11.55pm could be announced in the morning edition of the Times newspaper rather than, this is a quote, less appropriate evening journals. Uh, the decision was taken to uh, give the King a lethal overdose of morphine. I bet his doctor didn't get sent down for it. He did not. There you go. Did he get a Rolls Royce? It isn't on Wikipedia. The source of all knowledge. Dawson, who supported, this is called, the gentle growth of euthanasia, admitted in his diary that he had ended the king's life. He wanted him to have the dignity and serenity which he richly merited and demanded a brief final scene. Hours of waiting for the mechanical end of life, when really all life has departed, only exhausts the onlookers. I therefore determined to end and injected morphia. That's in his diary. Queen's granddad, King George V's physician. Go on, Dawson. Mm-hmm. Anyway, details about tonight's show can be found on Teletext, page 612. The events we cover on this show, such as the murder of the head of state, are very rare. <laughs> Do sleep well. Don't have nightmares. <laughs>